This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And again, we thank Jeff Eden from Studio 8 for that wonderful composition, our new theme song in Hour 1. He also composes the theme song for Hour 2. Hey, it's great to be back in the studio and welcome to the broadcast, incidentally, for Sunday, July the 17th. And uh, when last we spoke... When we were uh, so rudely interrupted, I was uh, uh, doing the show live from a hotel somewhere in the Smoky Mountains along Interstate 40, and the uh, the internet uh, connection there is tenuous at best. So I think we got the first 40 minutes in, didn't we, Griff? Great. All right. Uh, with uh, Tom Hennigan and uh, Nelson Thal. And uh, uh, you, you heard George Ginescu as he was uh, just signing off, mentioning something that he heard on the show last week. That happened happened to be uh, in the newspapers, like you know, a, a day or two later, and that was Tom Hennigan referring to uh, one of the banks up here in Canada. Uh, so occasionally, we make news on the program. Uh, thanks to Tom Hennigan uh, and Nelson Thal for that. All right, we have a uh, busy show for you tonight. Uh, we'll get uh, John Rappaport in here from no, no More Fake News in just a moment to talk about psychiatric population control. Uh, and we'll dedicate the hour to that. Now, this is absolutely uh, jaw-dropping stuff he's going to lay on us, ladies and gentlemen. So stay tuned for that. But in hour two of the program, the real men in black, lecture, author, journalist Nick Redfern will be here. And uh, he is the author of the aforementioned The Real Men in Black, Evidence, Famous Cases, and True Stories of this me- These Mysterious Men and Their Connection to UFO phenomena, and I know you're wondering, do they really look like uh, Tommy Lee Jones and uh, the the Fresh Prince? The Fresh Prince. What is his actual name? It's Will Smith. Little mind cramp there. Oh, <laughs> it's great to be also back in the in the confines uh, of the, uh, the the uh, the studio here at 550 Queen Street. Um, just got back from a whirlwind tour down in uh, the U.S. for nine days uh, shooting interviews for the uh, the Conspiracy Show television program, which will uh, be back on for Season 2 coming in October. 
18 brand new episodes, and i just give you a quick thumbnail sketch of the itinerary. Uh, so uh, I fly down to uh, Tampa with uh, my director, producer, Jalal Murray, and he's got the in-laws uh, standing, staying down there in the area, so we pick up uh, some crew down there, and uh, we land like at 11 o'clock in the morning, and we've got a race uh, two hours south down to uh, Cape Coral, and then from there, we race across the state to Boca Raton, and then and then we've got like a nine-hour drive ahead of us to get up to uh, north of Pensacola, a place called Milton, which is right on the border with Alabama. I uh, interviewed a, a pastor there at the Hickory Hammock Road Baptist Church, um, a fascinating interview on Bible codes. And then the next day we had to, uh, we had to be in Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi, where Brooks Agnew is actually down there working uh, on a contract. But uh, Brooks Agnew, of course, is the expedition leader for this. Uh, well, they're, they're going to set sail hopefully in August of 2012 aboard a Russian nuclear icebreaker, along with some filmmakers and other scientists making their way up into the, uh, the Arctic Ocean, trying to find the inner passage into the interior of the Earth. Can't wait for you to see uh, our episode on the hollow Earth uh, with Brooks Agnew. Anyway, from uh, Hattiesburg, we went to, uh, to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm standing outside of the historic RCA Victor Studio, of, of course, where Elvis and Roy Orbison and many other luminaries recorded. Uh, and, and I finally got a face-to-face meeting with my old friend R. Gary Patterson, uh, the author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. Uh, I've known Gary over the phone and over the radio for about a decade. And this was our first time we got to, uh, to meet. Had a great conversation uh, for an upcoming episode. And uh, then we went up, went up to, uh, to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, if you're listening in Charlotte. Uh, because when, in, the interesting thing about 740, of course, is it, uh, it's a clear channel at night. Uh, it carries the signal qu- uh, clear on down to the Carolinas. So when I'm down in these places, I'm checking to see you know, how the signal is coming in. And it was coming in great. And uh, from uh, Charlotte to, to Washington, D.C., and then from Washington to Philadelphia, where I uh, interviewed David, David Jacobs in his lovely uh, Victorian home. David Jacobs, one of the foremost abduction, alien abduction researchers. And then on up to uh, New York City, where I had the pleasure of meeting Sirhan Sirhan's attorney, William Francis Pepper. And we had uh, quite a conversation. And uh, that, of course, is for an upcoming episode as well of the TV show. So look for it in October uh, 2011. We'll have some exact dates for you. And... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll put that up on the website as well at www.richardserrett.com. All right, let's get to our uh, our first item uh, on the program tonight: psychiatric population control. Uh, John Rappaport uh, has been with us a number of uh, times, and uh, over the last thirty-five years, he's really gained a reputation as one of the most relentless medical investigative reporters in the world. He was nominated early in his career for a Pulitzer Prize, and he's written for CBS Health Watch, LA Weekly, Spin Magazine, Stern, and other newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe, and he is currently the associate producer on a film in progress, American Addict, detailing the effects of pharmaceuticals on the U.S. population. And, of course, you know him from his famous uh, website, www.nomorefakenews.com. John Rappaport, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Okay, Richard. It's great to talk to you again. You sent me this uh, email uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, I mean, the the statistics are just startling. We're going to talk over the next hour 
about something you're calling authoritarian psychiatric invasions into everyday life. What do you mean by that? The drugs. Always the drugs. First the diagnosis, and then the drugs. It's a game, a very vicious game. Basically what you've got here is a profession that chops up human behavior into categories and puts names and labels on them and calls them mental disorders. And what most people don't understand is that the Bible of such disorders, which is bowed down to by every psychiatrist in the world, is discussion by committee. Shall we name it this? Shall we name it that? Is it this label? Is it bipolar? Is it going to be ADHD? There are no tests. There are no chemical tests. There are no blood tests. There are no saliva tests. There are no any kind of physical tests. Never have been for any of the 297 disorders currently listed in what's called the DSM, Diagnostics and Statistics Manual of Psychiatric or Mental Disorders. And of course, each one of these disorders is treated with a drug. So that's what I mean by invasiveness, because anybody at any time from age two all the way up to 102 can be diagnosed by a pediatrician or a psychiatrist with any of these disorders, and then a prescription is written for a drug. When, when you say authoritarian, John, authoritarian psychiatric invasions, it, it almost sounds like people are being... Uh, force-fed or, or, or uh, administered under force, these, these, uh, these medications? Well, it's more subtle than that. Although they would like to make it uh, mandated, and one day perhaps they will. I mean, there are certain conditions under which a person can be forced to take psychiatric drugs, but by and large, it's by propaganda. It's the sort of thing which I know you've encountered many times before, and I have too, where people will say, well, we are the experts. We know the area of the brain and the mind. We're licensed. Nobody else is. We have licenses from the government. We have the journals. We have all the research and the science and so on. And with the enormous amount of media complicity in this, they set themselves up as a profession of scientists, experts. I've talked to a number of doctors, Richard, over the years. I'm just talking about internists and, uh, you know, GPs, people who uh, treat uh, illness and, and ask them about psychiatry, and they just laugh at me, and they say, this is the biggest con in the world. There is no science to back this up. But what there is is this kind of propaganda. Are you talking mainly about bipolar disease uh, or what, what it's been called bipolar disease or are you also talking about things like clinical depression? Because, you know, there are people that have been helped that, that suffer from clinical depression uh, with, with medication, have there not? Well, if you were to talk to people, you would find all kinds of reaction to that. And yes, I am talking about clinical depression, bipolar, talking about ADHD or ADD talking about uh, schizophrenia, talking about all of these disorders that are being diagnosed more and more and more. For example, 
as of 2009, we have 27 million Americans on antidepressants. <laughs> we have, uh, looking at my notes spread all over the table here, the years 2006 to 2008, 7.6% of American children were diagnosed with ADHD. And so the answer is, some people will say they're helped, some people will say they're not. Some people will say they have experienced horrendous adverse effects. And then we have the so-called placebo effect, which is a psychiatrist says, I know what I'm talking about, you take this drug, you'll feel better, and the person does, and would have even if given a sugar pill. But the overall propaganda effect of this profession, which is what I'm getting at here, is to establish itself as the authority so that when a person is diagnosed with a disorder like bipolar, for example, friends, family, co-workers, everybody seems to be in the mix all of a sudden. Well, this is a good thing. This is a very good thing. Your disease has been located. Now we understand why you've been acting strangely all these years, and of course you've got to follow the doctor's advice. You see, and uh, the person may be a little, the patient may be a little bit doubtful about whether or not he should take this diagnosis and take the drugs. But there's tremendous peer pressure, and where does that come from? It comes from someone who set himself up as an authority, who says, "I rule." this area. And for example, there are two main drugs for bipolar, valproate and lithium. And I will just read you very quickly a few of the effects of valproate. John, uh, if I can get you, let, let's uh, hold off. We'll, we'll right. take a time out. When we come back, we'll talk about lithium and valproate. And uh, as you say, the adverse effects of the aforementioned John Rappaport, my guest, no more fake news one of the great relentless medical investigative reporters in the world. We'll also make phone, the phones available to you over the next hour as we discuss psychiatric population control here on The Conspiracy Show. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740. 4740 Where there's smoke, there's the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. John Rappaport is with us, psychiatric population control. Here's, I'm going to crib from a press release uh, that he sent out across uh, North America uh, recently. A new book has revealed that the diagnosis of bipolar disease among American children is a scientific fraud and a precursor to the administration of highly dangerous drugs. Psychiatrist Stuart Kaplan, a professor at Penn State College of Medicine, has written an article for the June 20th issue of Newsweek based on his book, Your Child Does Not Have Bipolar Disorder, How Bad Science and Good PR Created the Diagnosis. Kaplan states that in 1995, there were fewer than 20,000 outpatient visits for pediatric bipolar disorder in the U.S. As of 2003, that number had swelled to a mind-boggling 800,000. And yet... There is no recognized psychiatric category called pediatric bipolar disorder. 
but the publication of a 2002 bestseller, The Bipolar Child, followed by wall-to-wall media coverage on Oprah in Time 2020, Dan Rather, took the country by storm. Worse yet is the treatment regimen for children stemming from this false diagnosis, the two major drugs in question, lithium and valproate. And uh, John Rappaport, you were going to tell us uh, the, the adverse effects of valproate and, and, uh, and uh, lithium. Yes, here's just a few. For valproate, acute, life-threatening, and evil, even fatal liver toxicity, life-threatening inflammation of the pancreas, brain damage, adverse effects of lithium, intracranial pressure leading to blindness, peripheral circulatory collapse, stupor, and coma. And then we have Risperdal, which is another drug that is given for bipolar and also irritability stemming from autism, and those uh, effects include serious impairment of cognitive function, fainting, and also restless muscles in the neck, face tremors, which may be indicative of motor brain damage. Now, the, the list of adverse effects, where does this come from? Are, have these been published in, in, in journals? Well, you can find or? them in a number of places. Uh, drugs.com has some of the effects. You can find them if you just simply look up these drugs in the PDF, which is the uh, the Bible of effects of drugs uh, that are prescribed for patients. And are these being prescribed for children as young as two, did I hear you say? Yeah, that's right. The, because you see, if they're going to diagnose these diseases, and the pharmaceutical companies are really behind all of this because they're looking for bigger market share, they want to increase the population that can be diagnosed with these things. So they naturally go into the area of children. And in this case, uh, the whistle was blown because there really isn't anything in the diagnostic manual called pediatric bipolar disorder. And yet it's been diagnosed all over the place. You just read the statistics there. And then the drugs are prescribed, and then you will get young children on these really destructive drugs and also adults. And so what I'm tracing out here, you see, Richard, is a line. It's like a road that you walk down, and it begins with person experiences problems, suffering, pain, whatever it is. Life is not going well. Nobody denies this. These are realities for millions of people. And then they walk into an office of a psychiatrist, and he says, uh, let's have a discussion, and they do. And then at the end of that, he said, well, I'm ready to diagnose you with the following, blah, blah, blah. Oh, really? Yes. This is a recognized disorder, and there's no stigma attached to it. And everybody recognizes now that this is just like diagnosing you with diabetes, and so I'm going to write you a prescription. And then the whole parade begins. It's pretty fantastic. Now, the the, the publication uh, in 2002 of The Bipolar Child, is that really where this explosion all started? Or were people being diagnosed, children uh, being diagnosed prior to that in great numbers? Well, from what I can gather, some children were but it was a small number. You see, there's such a thing, just as there's such a thing as off-label use of drugs where doctors can decide to prescribe a drug for something that uh, it was not built for, 
in the same way, you can take a, a category like bipolar, if you're a psychiatrist, and you can begin to fool around with it. You can stretch it. You can say, well, if I can diagnose an adult with it, why not a child? I mean, they're all human beings. And so there was some of that going on. But it really was an explosion of media coverage and propaganda that launched the acceleration of the diagnosis of bipolar in children. And who, who published or who, who authored The Bipolar Child? I don't have his name right in front of me. I had it here in my notes. But it was a gigantic bestseller. And it was Oprah, Time, 2020. The whole thing was treated like a major discovery, you know, a breakthrough in the sort of what I call the sympathy industry where suddenly everybody is judged to be a victim of one kind or another, and if you haven't yet gotten that label, well, gee whiz, uh, wait for it, it's just around the corner. And uh, psychiatry happens to be one of the biggest uh, proponents of the victim industry. So here comes a book, and all of a sudden, the sympathy as an outpouring, my goodness, parents have been puzzled and suffering because of the child's behavior, and now we have an authoritative breakthrough in the field, and uh, we have bipolar in children. Now, 800,000, as of 2003, 800,000 outpatient visits for pediatric bipolar. Does that mean there, there are uh, 800,000 or more children walking around on lithium or valproate? My estimate is that the number uh, is higher because outpatient visits is a slightly vague term. It basically means, you know, an office appointment. And so if you were to look at the numbers of prescriptions written, I think you would be looking at a slightly higher figure. And, of course, that was 2003, and it's only gotten larger since then, this whole idea of oh, we have children with bipolar and we have to diagnose it. And also, by the way, this is the, the latest slant that's been going on now for, I would say, the last seven or eight years. We thought it was clinical depression. We gave you the drugs. They didn't really do the job. And that's because we didn't recognize that the depression was just one component of the larger picture, which is the manic depression, which is what bipolar is. And therefore, we're going to re-diagnose you with that now, and we're going to prescribe new drugs. But the, the parade and, never ends. But what, is, what do you think, then, is wrong with, with uh, some of these children? I mean, I mean, is there, in fact, a chemical imbalance? Is it dietary? Is it, uh, uh, I don't know, too, yeah, too look, many video games? What, what's going because on? Because in some cases, there's nothing wrong. You know, I mean... You've got to start from that when you're talking about ADHD or bipolar. In some cases, there's absolutely nothing wrong. It's raining outside, and the kid is looking out the window, and he feels sad, and he says to his mother, what can I do today? It's raining. And she says, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? No, 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 no. And if it happens to be raining a lot that winter, m mommy is going to get fairly upset after a while because the kid is just driving her crazy, and so she takes him to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, there might be something here for a psychiatrist to look at. And all of a sudden, you've got a diagnosis being slapped on here. In other cases, it's definitely nutritional deficits. 
the child is eating a diet which is robbing him or her of basic nutritional needs that are causing all sorts of irregular behaviors. Or, as has been documented by several groups in America, most notably the Feingold Association, the artificial colors and dyes in food in some children cause bizarre behaviors, and as processed foods have taken over the entire food industry and eating in America and other countries, you find more and more of that as well. So there are a number of ways to look at this and go at it and find actual answers for problems that children have. And they can be fixed and they can be remedied. You may have hypersensitivity to certain kinds of food that contain gluten, or the kid is eating too much sugar by far because of how much is in the uh, soft drinks and is now experiencing all kinds of spikes of blood sugar, high blood sugar, low blood sugar, which definitely causes erratic behaviors. So you see, you've got a whole panoply of possibilities to look at here. But this is all being swept aside as nonsense by the psychiatrist because they have their list of behaviors that allow them to make these diagnoses, and then they begin to prescribe drugs. All right, uh, John, we'll take a time out. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about ADHD. Uh, you know, we were told that it's uh, practically a, uh, a pandemic, uh, if I can use that term. And, and uh, I mean, certainly if you look at the, the rate of diagnosis, it appears to be. But what's really underlying all of these diagnoses with, of, of ADHD? And also, you mentioned uh, a schizophrenia, which, you know, I, I don't know too many families that uh, have not been touched in some way. Um, uh, by that uh, illness, or whatever you want to call it, but I, I want to find out your 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 thoughts on schizophrenia, and uh, also you mentioned psychiatric population control. What do we mean by psychiatric population control? We'll come back, John Rappaport, here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there; it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. And my producer, Griffin March, just informed me that tonight marks our 100th show since we kicked it all off uh, August 16th, 2009. So there you go. And uh, what better way to kick off our 100th show than with John Rappaport, a uh, relentless medical investigative reporter and a Pulitzer Prize, or nominated for a Pulitzer Prize very early on in his career. And, of course, you know him from nomorefakenews.com. We're talking about psychiatric population control. And, uh, uh, John, ADHD, um, how, wh- what are the numbers there in terms of the, n- the number of children diagnosed with ADHD or ADD? Or well, whatever? we don't know for sure, but it could be as much as 4 million there have been a lot of figures thrown around because it's difficult to say, but it's mostly boys, interestingly enough. And we have a source from Pediatrics uh, Journal 
May 23, 2011, saying that in the years 2006 to 2008, 7.6 percent of American children were diagnosed with ADHD. And, and what does it take to get a diagnosis? Johnny won't sit still during reading time in grade two. Well, I mean, how, how does that work? Yeah, it's kind of a menu of behaviors. You you know, if you have one or two of these behaviors, like uh, fiddling in class, can't pay attention, uh, can't concentrate on his work, uh, outbursts. A slightly aggressive behavior uh, doesn't really uh, give in to authority uh, easily, but it is basically the sense of hyperactivity, restless, can't focus. And based on this, the diagnoses are handed out like candy because now people have gotten used to ADHD. Oh, yeah, ADHD, sure, whatever, you know. But, uh, okay, so my kid has ADHD, no big deal. And so you get this, I mean, look, 7.6% of American children diagnosed with ADHD, I mean, that's almost one out of 10. I mean, that's getting close to one out of 10. And in many cases, maybe most cases, they're, they're simply behaving like ordinary five, six, seven-year-old boys, I'm guessing. Yeah. Exactly, and if they're drinking uh, these sort of uh, speeded-up type drinks, soft drinks, you know, that are now on the market, that's all it takes. Aspartame? Yeah, you know, you just drink a few of these, and you're wired, and your parents look at you, what's going on? Nothing, uh, but the kid can't sit still at the dinner table, he's fidgeting, he's moving around, he's getting up, he's sit down, eat your dinner, no, I don't want to, I'm not hungry, and all of a sudden, the kid, parents are going, what's wrong with the kid? And Daddy says, "Well, it sounds like ADHD to me. It might have, you know, chemical imbalance. We should take him to the pediatrician." And then, the drugs, Ritalin. Ritalin. Now that's a chemical imbalance. Yeah, because it's a cheap form of speed. A lot of people don't realize this. It's amphetamine-like. It is like giving somebody amphetamine, and it has in children what they call a paradoxical reaction, which instead of making them more hyperactive, it calms them down. But that's a misnomer. What actually happens is for a while, maybe just a brief period, it depends on the, the kid, there's a sense of focus. Oh, okay, the kid can suddenly focus on his schoolwork. Just like somebody who's taking speed all of a sudden feels, you know, the first time he takes it, okay, gee, everything is clear. I can see around me. I don't feel tired. I'm not fatigued. I'm able to concentrate, sure. But sooner or later, there's going to be an adverse effect, a flattening of emotion, possible sadness, fatigue, depression, maybe a kind of a crash that people who take speed experience where they just kind of go haywire. This is a tough drug. And in a book, which people can find on my site, it's now an e-book, Ownership of All Life, I begin to explore this, as well as a number of other uh, medical uh, and political conspiracies, where the drug becomes the producer of the symptoms, which supposedly were the symptoms that the kid was suffering from in the first place. You know, it's, it's very strange when you see that. You say, well, wait a minute now. You're giving this person a drug because they had certain symptoms, but the drug produces the same symptoms. Well, not really. But you see, this gives psychiatrists an out. They can say, parent comes back with the kid, well, he's worse. 
it's actually from the drug. And the parent says, could it be that the Ritalin is caused? Oh, no, 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 no. Because you see that what you're describing here are the symptoms of ADHD, which simply indicates that the disorder is uh, getting worse. Now, how long typically are, are children on either lithium for bipolar or Ritalin for ADHD? Their whole lives? There is no good answer to that, but there is, there's no end point. That much I can tell you. It's not as if the doctor says, okay, well, you've had enough. No, that's not the way it works. Most people who go off the drugs, and I have to point out here very acutely to people listening to this show, you don't withdraw from any psychiatric drug suddenly. Withdrawal can cause severe adverse effects life-threatening in certain cases, you must do this under the supervision of a professional who knows what he's doing. Um, people stop. People tail off. People don't go back for another prescription. But the doctor would continue to just keep on prescribing this. There would be no particular end in sight. Do these drugs have an effect on the liver? Oh, yeah. All of these drugs do. Eventually, sure. It's different in different people because some people tend to have drugs pass through their system more easily than others. And the ones who have it passed through don't experience as much change in the liver, but others definitely you'll see liver toxicity, serious liver toxicity resulting, which is the case with any drug that's toxic or any substance that's toxic. It puts a burden on the liver. All right, let's uh, go to the phones. Claire is in Toronto. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, Claire. Yeah. Um, I, I, I heard from uh, a gentleman who runs a program for youth that a lot of the problems with, this, um, with what you're saying seems to be true is they have a correlation between the psychiatric and the, um, what do you call it, the social services with, that, with children. And a lot of the young people are being put on these drugs from early, and they become actually very suicidal. He takes a lot of them out of the system because they're like a borderline prison, kind of going off to prison because they're getting so bad. And he takes them into the program. He does not use government assistance. So it's strictly by people donating. And they take them. They have psychiatrists and other things that work with the kids. And the kids come off, and they're fine. They're going to university. They're doing great. But it's not a lot of people that he can do it relatively in comparison to the great population numbers. But it is a lot of things to do with teen suicides and stuff like that. That's an excellent point, Claire. That's an excellent point. John, what what is the... Uh, what, what do we call it? The legacy uh, here. I mean, do we? Is there a connection uh, between uh, incarceration and people that have been diagnosed with bipolar or ADHD? Is there a correlation between suicide or homicide? And well, there's definitely a correlation between suicide, homicide, violent behavior, and antidepressants. No question about it. I mean, you can even read it on the labels of what's called the SSRI antidepressants like Prozac and so on. I'm glad the caller brought up this point. This is a major, this is where government, you see, and medicine connect, collaborate, and also pharmaceutical industry. Because in many of these social service operations all around the country, U.S., Canada, around the world, actually, they do prescribe drugs. They do give drugs. 
and they do it in an irresponsible way, more irresponsibly even than in a the psychiatrist's office. The kids are diagnosed, bum, 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 here you go, take the drug, what does the kid know? The kid is under the supervision to a degree of the social worker, and so everybody goes along with it, and then all of a sudden the kid begins to display all kinds of bizarre behaviors, but none of this is traced back to the drugs. It's, it's unbelievable what goes on behind the scenes in some of these social service organizations. It's a major, major problem, and it's getting worse. John, I, gotta, I have to ask you about schizophrenia. Now, uh, you're the, the, the medical investigative journalist. Um, you know, I, I, my, t- my family has been touched uh, by uh, a devastating diagnosis of schizophrenia. Uh, and I, I just, you know, I see people that have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. I know people, there's something definitely wrong there and and uh, I don't know of all the things that you're describing I mean that to me is one th- I mean there, there may be a genetic component it may be viral but to me there's something really uh, you know wrong with 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 the brain what, what do you think is going on if it's if it's not right, an actual well, look, let me let me just try to make a distinction here no one is denying there's something wrong see but the difference between saying that and slapping a label on a person, which then leads, in the case of schizophrenia particularly, to some really damaging drugs. I mean, we're talking about the kinds of drugs which are called neuroleptics or sometimes called major tranquilizers. In the United States alone, 300,000 cases at least of motor brain damage incurred by people who have been prescribed these drugs. And the source on that is a major book called Toxic Psychiatry by Dr. Peter Bregan, B-R-E-G-G-I-N, who's been fighting this problem for a long time. He is a psychiatrist. So the difference between saying, yes, something is definitely majorly wrong, and saying this is schizophrenia, which we, you know, is a definite mental disorder, by the way, no physical test for that, no blood test, no saliva test, no urine test, no any kind of physical test, no chemical test. It's just in the book. It's in the Bible. Always has been. Now leads to the drugs that have these devastating effects. So now the question is, well, what is the problem if it's not this label that everybody is buying called schizophrenia? And now, unfortunately, what is necessary is the kind of practitioner who can really look into that person, that individual, and see what is going on. Could it be a chronic problem of brain inflammation as a result of who knows what? I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities, including vaccines, which cause encephalopathy in young children. Could it be some disastrous kind of environmental exposure to a chemical? Could it be that the person has, and there have been cases, many cases, such a drastic kind of food sensitivity that it throws the person into a complete psychosis? Could it be that there is a series of these interrelated in a person, including drastic nutritional deficits that have driven this person into this horrendous state of mind? That is a detective story that needs to have a really talented, sympathetic 
humane practitioner available as opposed to somebody who's going to slap on a diagnosis and then begin prescribing horrendous drugs. All right, let's go back to the phones. Teresa, also in Toronto, good evening. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Teresa. Hello. Hi. Go ahead. Okay, I'm going to have to... Yes. Um, I have been on lithium for since the age of 39. Uh, at the age of 65, I'm dying. I am dying. My heartbeat is down to 30, and they took me off lithium immediately. Okay. I'm going to shut off my radio because I'm, I'm hearing myself. Yes, thank you, Teresa. Okay. Now, this is the first time I have a very strong heart. So, um, I'm, pacemaker was put in. To save my life, a pacemaker was put in. In two, three months, kidney infection, kidney infection. I'm diabetic. I'm dying again. They saved my life. At the Trillium, in Itobi, in, in Mississauga, they saved my life again. Uh, they put me on Cerocal because I have trouble sleeping at night. And I'm well. I'm very well. However, I've been, I've been told that I'm bipolar, I'm bipolar, I'm bipolar. Fine, fine, fine. I don't know what else to tell you. I'm on Cerocal. I sleep at night. But I also take Tegretol because I have a tiny, tiny... Um, but it's cell, no, no, a tiny, uh, whatever, I don't know what to call it, near my pituitary. I've been on, on Tegretol since I was 39 years old. Now, they never bothered to tell me that I, I knew, I know I have this problem because at the age of 35 at women's college, they told me, Teresa, you have a tiny cyst near your pituitary, but don't worry, they put me on Parlodel for six years. I'm still alive. I'm 69 years old. I'm still alive. However, I cannot go off Cerocal. Once I go off Cerocal, I do not sleep at night. Okay, Teresa, uh, let's get John in here to, uh, to respond. Well, you know, I can. I'm not a doctor, so there's no medical diagnosis coming from me. No, no, no. It's very difficult to comment on something like this. We're talking about a whole array of drugs here and... Uh, the kind of diagnosis that, uh, you know, would have to be made on a very serious level. I am diabetic. I was born with Yeah, diabetes. well, I understand. I understand. It's, uh, it's not a good situation. But for me to make a comment on it and say, well, do this or do no, that. No, no, I, I wasn't looking for that, John. I'm not I just in a position to, to be able to do this. Certainly not. But, I, I mean, is this, are you hearing uh, about people who have been on lithium for a long time and coming off it and seeing a difference in it? Well, this is, again, one of these drugs where, as I say, any psychiatric drug that a person is going to withdraw from has to be done very gradually and only under the supervision of a professional who, not just a professional, but somebody who really knows how to do this so that severe effects do not occur during the period of withdrawal. All right, Teresa, That's thank you. That's the best thing I can say. Thank you. Teresa, thank you for the call. When we come back, John, I want you to, to discuss uh, why you feel this is, in fact, a form of population control. John Rappaport, No More Fake News, here on The, the uh, Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 1-866-472-5787.
Call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I think it's important to stress that John Raffaport, uh, he himself mentioned, is not a physician, is not a doctor. He's a, a medical investigative reporter. And uh, so, you know, consult your physician. Uh, I guess is the best thing that we can say. But we are talking about psychiatric population control. And what do you mean by by that, John? How is this population control? Well, it's the drugs, because that's where we started and that's where we finish. When you have 27 million Americans taking antidepressants, that's almost one out of 10 in America. That's just one type of psychiatric drug. These drugs have been linked to suicide, violence, homicide. Who knows how many murders in the United States that seem senseless have actually been uh, prompted, pushed people over the edge, the drugs, the antidepressants. I used to write articles about this every time there was one of these kind of, you know, crazy things where somebody would walk into an office and start shooting people. What drugs? was the guy on. I've talked to cops, I've talked to people, lawyers, I've talked to all kinds of people, and they tell me, we don't want to mess with this. We don't want to get into that if we can avoid it. If it comes out, then we have to think about it, but we're not going to start to really check into this because we're going to be going up against some very powerful interests here, pharmaceutical interests, psychiatrists who begin to testify in court all the time on competency issues of defendants. We don't want to get involved. And I say, but look, this guy just walked into an office. He shot up the place. He killed four people. You can't find a motive. I mean, you can find a little bit, but it's not the kind of motive where you would say he would do this. Don't you want to know what drug he's on here? I call this, and they say, no, we don't. I call this Operation Chaos. Population control in the sense of, okay, some people we want to put in a chemical straitjacket. The numbers of people that are on sedatives and tranquilizers in the United States, I mean, it's, it's so huge that I don't think you can even get the stats on it, Valium and so on. These people are, to some degree or another, zombied out by these drugs on a daily basis which means they're controlled, which means they can't think straight, they can't see what's going on around them, all the issues you bring up on your shows that you have experts in here commenting on that don't make it into major media. These people who are zombied out on the drugs have absolutely no way of processing that information or, or looking into it on their own or doing anything about it because they're just not available. And, and John, and you're, these, those drugs. these now, numbers aren't even... Sorry, I was going to say, and this isn't even including the, the, the rest of us that might be ingesting a little bit of this through our drinking water. Yeah, that's right, because uh, well, that's a whole other thing, yeah. Because 
some of these drugs that do pass through the system do get into the drinking water, and they are not filtered out. And so you're ingesting a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and now on top of that, you've got these antidepressants, which admittedly cause tremendously erratic behavior, including suicide and homicide, and you've got all kinds of chaos out there in the society with people committing violent crimes, some of which don't have an apparent motive. This is what I call population control and chaos. Now, you can talk about it in one way or another. I mean, we haven't the time to get into the possible intentionality of this as opposed to massive uh, profit-taking motives on the part of pharmaceutical people and so on. But in my view, there is at the top of the ladder here of power definitely an intentionality here to drug populations and keep them, therefore, within a certain kind of straitjacket of behavior and thought. No question about it. To say nothing of the long-term... Uh, effects on the, on the brain. I mean, uh, you, you may not uh, kill everyone off. Uh, I mean, it's not an ef- it's not an efficient way of population control. I mean, no, you it's can be- not depopulation. No. but it's controlling the population that exists. And and what do you think long term we're going to see? Uh, are we going to see uh, you know an, an epidemic in in kidney disease? Are we going to or liver disease? Are we going to see uh, absolutely uh, kidney disease, liver disease? brain atrophy, which is already taking place. I mean, all these things are already taking place. And they will be labeled other kinds of diseases, you see. And so the connection will be lost to the psychiatric drugs. It won't be a connection made there. It'll be, well, we just discovered a new variety of uh, hepatitis that we hadn't seen before. Blah, 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 blah. They'll come, the up with a, they'll come up with an, a vaccine for that, no doubt. Yeah, like a vaccine and a drug. You see, and that's how it's all obscured, because one effect of a drug leads to a diagnosis of another so-called disease, which leads to more drugs and more diagnoses, and it never quits. This is wholesale destruction of the population. And we're just talking tonight about the psychiatric element. Forget the... the the bigger picture, which is the whole medical arena of toxic drugs for all of the other diagnoses that are non-psychiatric. Let's go to Ajax and say hello to Mike. Good evening, Mike. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good evening. Uh, is there a possibility that anybody can put together a, a yardstick of uh, 5,000 people and see what vitamins and minerals are in them so that you can uh, then add up against possible... So you get a yardstick and say, okay, this possible problem is the problem? Yeah. You put your finger on a really good point, you see, but they're not doing those studies. They don't want to go near that because suppose they find out that what you're hinting at here is absolutely correct. Suppose they discover, gee, just to to throw out an example, here's a thousand kids that we diagnosed with X mental disorder, but it turns out that in the majority of them, they have significant common factors of nutritional deficiency. Oh, so we could treat this without any drugs. And uh-oh, uh-oh, all kinds of bells are ringing and red flags. They don't want to do this. They don't want to get close to it, but you're absolutely right. Study. Uh, what's, what's the mix when you put, uh, we're not talking about children here, we're talking about people over 50. Sure. Okay, you put lorazepam with Adderall, with ADD, 
uh, with uh, you put that mix together, what's actually happening? Oh, you put all these drugs together. Yes. Well, that toxicity has never been studied uh, conclusively, or they even tried to be. They don't want to go close to that either because. You start seeing, as Richard suggested, liver toxicity, all sorts of effects, brain effects. Well, I was taking lorazepam, SLM, and then uh, Adderall for ADD and uh, get rid of the lithium because that was a problem. But, you know, I just can't seem to focus, can't seem to get all mixed up. You've got to take it. You've got to... You I understand. In other words, I mean, again, I'm not in a position to make any sort of I know, but none of these diagnosis, but I, what I'm saying is that studies could be done on the population over 50, absolutely, and you could see what are the nutritional deficiencies, what's happening with people, what are the combined effects of various drugs in terms of toxicity, in terms of uh, circulation, blood pressure, all sorts of parameters they could be studying. They would really and they wouldn't, would not involve the but uh, they're not doing it. They're not doing it. Okay, Mike. You thank Mike. Uh, thanks for the call in Ajax. Uh, uh, John, how do we uh, how do we get out from under this? W- what are the steps that we should be taking as a society to to stop this? Okay, in twenty seconds or less, the one thing that people have to keep in mind is that we must preserve our individual freedom to decide to take drugs or not take drugs, to agree with a diagnosis or not agree with a diagnosis because that's the bottom line. As long as you have enough freedom, you can then get information and you can make your own decisions or you can consult any kind of practitioner you want to come to a conclusion. That freedom is what is under attack. And to the degree that it shrinks and it becomes smaller, we are all going down the drain. That is the one bottom line that we have to protect because as long as that freedom exists, at least there is time for individuals to make up their minds about the sorts of things that we've been discussing tonight and to look into this, to research, to find good information and separate it from bad. But I tell you, and that's the subject of a whole other show at least, what's happening to that freedom in the medical arena, it's shrinking. And we have to protect it. We just absolutely have to protect it. John Rappaport, nomorefakenews.com. Thanks as always, John, and hope to see you out in San Diego soon. Me too, Richard. Thanks so much. Thank you. When we come back, lecturer, author, journalist Nick Redfern discusses those mysterious, elusive, predatory, fear-inducing figures known as the Men in Black. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740.
Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right, if you're into flying saucers or perhaps the US the Roswell UFO incident, maybe you've uh, you've paid a visit to Area 51. One day you may be visited by some black garbed men. The men in black, who are they? What do they want? Where do they come from? We're going to get into that in the next hour. Nick Redfern is the author of The Real Men in Black, Evidence, Famous Cases, and True Stories of These Mysterious Men and Their Connection to the UFO Phenomenon. Nick works full-time as an author, lecturer, journalist. He writes about a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, alien encounters, the worlds of the supernatural and the paranormal, and government conspiracies and cover-ups. He's a regular contributor to UFO Magazine, Fate, uh, Fortean Times, uh, Paranormal Magazine. He's also written for Military Illustrated, I Spy, the British Daily Express, Western Daily Press, People, uh, Newspapers, and uh, Penthouse. And his previous books include The NASA Conspiracies, Contactees, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, Final Events, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, on and on it goes. Nick Redfern, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, thanks, Richard. I'm doing good, thanks. Uh, I, I would dare to venture that most of us, uh, what we know about the Men in Black, we we learn from uh, the movie mm. uh, Tommy Lee Jones and um, and and Will Smith. Um, so there are actual. I mean, how long have people been reporting they've been mm. visited by these black garbed nefarious uh, individuals? Mm, well, that's a good question. I mean, just sort of you know, just sort of just get what you said first. Um, you know, most people I see, um, you know their assumptions or their beliefs on the men in black come from the Hollywood movies. And one of the things I found um, during the research was that many people assume because there are a couple of Hollywood films, you know, that it actually was a creation of Hollywood. Many, even within ufology, you know, people thought that there was not much to it and it was just sort of mythology. But um, a lot of people don't realize that the movie series was based on a comic book series of the same name. The comic book was inspired by um, real reports of the men in black. Now, to, to answer your question, it sort of really goes back to the early years of the UFO phenomenon. Um, there are cases from the late 1940s, excuse me, late 1940s, but certainly to a greater degree in the early 50s, when um, people all around the world, not just in the United States, there reports from England, Australia, Mexico, all over the place, of people who said that they'd either had a UFO incident, like a, a pretty close encounter, in other words, like a significant UFO event, or they were researchers of the phenomenon, and that they'd been visited by these guys in black suits. Now, of course, you know, back then, the 40s and 50s, the agents of the FBI or CIA or whoever, you know, they wore the typical sort of black suit and the fedora-type hat, which you know, in today's world, kind of looks a little bit out of place. But back then, it was, a, you know, the sort of normal fashion. Um, the weird thing is that even today, the men in black appear like that. So there's a lot of very weird aspects to the men in black mystery. But they, as long as UFOs have been around, the men in black seem to have been around. And who is more most likely to be visited by men in black? Because, I mean, UFO sightings are so widespread, and often now there are mass sightings, if you, yeah. you know, the Phoenix Lights, and obviously the men in black aren't going to knock on mm-hmm. every one of their doors. Who are they most likely to visit? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, that, that's actually a very good question because, you know, I think if it was a case that there were certain events, certain cases or certain types, you know, we might be in a position to sort of be waiting for them to turn up and we could actually finally catch one. But we, one of the things we do find is that abductions, stories of alien abductions, seem to be more prevalent with respect to the men in black. For example, it's not just... Um, you know, sort of the late night knock on the front door that people talk about with the men in black. You know, there's things like telephone interference, mail tampering with mail arriving late and envelopes torn open and resealed, or people hearing strange noises and strange voices on the telephone. And abduction stories seem to have far more of a prevalence to um, you know, have these sort of men in black tie-ins than, say, for example, seeing a UFO up close and personal. Um, and, and it seems to be certainly the contact cases when somebody reports some sort of contact that then sort of has the, the MIB part on their trail. And, um, you know, of course, that sort of begs the question, well, who are they and, you know, what's their agenda? In, in, uh, in the aftermath of uh, the Roswell UFO crash in 47, mm-hmm. uh, uh, people were threatened. Uh, on the ground, oh, yeah. and there's some debate as to whether it was actually a uh, secret service that had been dispatched mm-hmm. there. Uh, in one case, the uh, the, the sheriff, uh, I, I think it's Chavez County, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Sheriff Wilcox, I believe it was, yeah. was actually out there threatening people. If you say anything, you know, the, the, it's a big desert out there, and we'll plant you, and they'll never find you. Um, but are there reports that, that there were men in black, sort of a separate entity operating mm-hmm. in that sphere at the time? Well, yeah, I mean, this, this is an important issue. You know, it, it's like in Roswell, we, we clearly have people being silenced and warned, which sounds like the men in black. You know, it sounds like the sort of thing they do. But if we look back at it sort of retrospectively and historically, we're clearly just dealing with military personnel whose job it was to ensure the truth about Roswell didn't get out. Now, you know, it might seem to some people to be kind of like... Um, not particularly significant that you're actually because you are talking about the men in black but we're actually not you know there is actually a distinction between somebody in the government who might want to keep roswell quiet and the sort of sinister men in black you know running around who don't seem answerable to any sort of government agency so sometimes it's just military people doing their job and they come across like the men in black other occasions you know they're, they're far stranger um i mean one of the weird things about the Men in Black that actually isn't reflected in the film, in the films and, um, you know, sort of popular culture, is that a lot of the Men in Black are described as looking quite weird. Uh, I know this, this is going to sound strange, but a lot of the witnesses all around the world have said, you know, the MI, MIB is sort of five foot to five feet five tall. They look very pale, have these weird shaped and oddly spaced eyes, and they don't seem overly conversant with our customs and you know it's a bizarre scenario but some people have suggested you know are there our governments men in black if you like you know keeping the ufo subject under wraps and is it possible there could be like alien men in black as well you know whether it's sort of similar to us but subtly camouflage themselves to move amongst us you know and it's an outrageous theory but that's what the witnesses are reporting you know they look like anorexic anemic weird guys <laughs> well how does a how does a typical if there is such a thing a mm. typical encounter with a men in black a play out okay. can you give me a, a thumbnail sketch yeah sure 
basically, uh, in mean, a lot of the reports, um, what will happen is that somebody, you know, let's just say hypothetically, they're driving home late one night, they see a UFO, they get home and they find there's been two hours of missing time. You know, then they start having weird dreams about being abducted off on the highway late at night and, you know, it starts to come out into their conscious mind then. Then a week later, you know, they're sort of watching TV at 10.30 at night and there's a knock at the front door. You know, and like most people, you think, who's knocking on the door this time of night? So there's sort of a bit, you know, a bit of trepidation. They open the front door, see who it is. And it's these guys in black suits. And very often, for some weird reason, they always turn up in threes. And, you know, the witnesses, it's, it's almost like the witnesses are sort of transfixed and, and almost hypnotized, I guess, in simple terms, where they just open the door. And, you know, they may say something like, Mr. Smith, you know, we understand you had an unusual experience last week. We'd like to talk to you about it. And they're kind of very lacking emotion, you know, uh, very robotic, zombie-like almost. Uh, but the people let them in. And, you know, they'll sit down on the couch and spill the beans of what happened to them. And, you know, then the MIB are just just literally just sitting there, kind of staring, if you like. And as one of the witnesses described it, the MIB kind of had this look on his face, like a, the look as the witness described it as the sort of look that a dog has just before it's about to bite. Um, you know, so they're sort of very ominous, and they just sit there, and then when they've got all the information they want, they just literally stand up, go to the door, and leave. And then it's after that that the person, it's like reality and sanity kicks back in. They think, why on earth did I let those people in? You know, it's like logic comes back to them, that was sort of common sense, that was sort of, you know, taken away from them. Um, and again, if we just had one or two cases like that, you know, you could say, well, it's just down to nerves on the part of the person, you know. But we have a lot of reports like that where it's almost like the free will of the people has gone. But what's interesting is in many cases, the witnesses have never told anybody about their experiences. You know, it might have occurred only two days ago but they decided not to tell the local police for fear of the media getting hold of the story and then everybody in town knowing about it. So they didn't tell anyone, but somehow the men in black know, you know. So it's a, again, it's a sort of very, very white, uh, weird and kind of odd scenario, if you like. Nick Redfern, the author of The Real Men in Black, Evidence, Famous Cases and True Stories of These Mysterious Men and Their Connection to the UFO Phenomena. We'll open up the phone lines as well. Perhaps you've had an encounter with a man in black or men in black. They travel in threes, apparently. Uh, or you've been shadowed or stalked by someone you suspect was part of the men in black would love to hear from you 416-360-0740 and out of town toll free from maine to minnesota north bay thunder bay to the carolinas 866-744-740 you are a former agent of a top secret organization that monitors extraterrestrials on Earth. We're the men in black. We have a situation and we need your help. There is a free mental health clinic at the corner of Lilac and East Valley. Next! Excuse me? Mr. Hey. on Earth. We're the men in black. We have a... It's like a... Kevin. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. was all a cover. Who are you? The question is, who are you? I'm the postmaster of Truro, Massachusetts, and I'm ordering you to leave these premises. Okay. Is that kneecap? 
charge. All right, people, we have a breach. Farrell cordoned off this area. Billings, I'll have a full perimeter wipe down right here, right now. Okay. Farrell, get a mob and escort all non-essential civilian personnel from this side immediately. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. We're talking about the men in black. Author, journalist, lecturer Nick Redfern is uh, with us. Now, uh, the the description of a typical encounter, it almost sounds like, you know, Jack Webb from Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. I mean, at any point, are threats being uh, issued? Are they saying, you will speak to the, uh, about this to no one, and if you do, we will be back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the threats are kind of veiled threats. You know, it's not sort of explicit. It's kind of along the lines of, you know, we understand you've seen a UFO. Um, have you checked the brakes on your car lately? <laughs> you know, it's kind of that sort of thing. You know, there's not like the explicit sort of situation that if you talk about this, you will die or whatever. But it, it is along the lines of allowing the person to think, wow, you know, did these guys just threaten me? And, of course, for a lot of people, and particularly, you know, I think back in the 40s and 50s, you know, um, that when somebody from the government knocks on the, your front door, if they are from the government, people listened. You know, this was before sort of, you know, protest movements and things like this. You know, this was sort of post-war era, and, um, and people listened. You know, if the FBI knock on the front door, you know, they, they took heed of it. Um, but with the men in, you know, the sort of the, these weird men in black, it really is a case of them kind of listening to what you've got to say and then sort of giving a veiled suggestion that it wouldn't be a good thing to talk about this because accidents can happen. You know, we get that a lot in these stories. In, in, the, uh, in the Hollywood um, uh, movies uh, with Tommy Lee and, and, and Will Smith, uh, the other role of the, the men in black was to sort of apprehend renegade mm. aliens and keep a sort of tabs on, mm. on uh, those that are among us. And, I, you know, I was down in Philadelphia recently and I spoke to uh, uh, Dr. David Jacobs, uh, yeah. one of the foremost alien abduction researchers, and he was lamenting. He said, you know, I, it's kind of depressing, he says, but uh, he suspects, you know, there's this long-standing alien-human hybrid program that's been going on and, and that there are many aliens now among us. But is there evidence that, that that's also part of what they're doing, that they are, you know, uh, mm. keeping tabs on different alien races and so forth? Well, you know, I mean, I've got to be honest, I've never come any ev- across any evidence like that. Um, you know, I think that, that sort of, you know, certainly makes for a fine, exciting, fun film, which the Men in Black films are. You know, because it probably would be a bit boring just to have a film where they're just constantly knocking on the doors and silencing people. You know, after 10 minutes, people are going to want something else. So, you know, I understand that, you know, when it's turned over into a fictional format, you know, you, you want it more visual and exciting. But the reality is that for the most part, the, it's the people in the field, the, the, the witnesses, the researchers, etc., who get the visit. There's no report or there are no reports as such to the best of my knowledge where you know the men in black turn up i guess you know policing the aliens if you like in simple terms but what i will tell you is that there are a number of intriguing reports where the men in black have have turned up in other sort of paranormal or weird events nothing to do on the face of it at least with ufos i'll give you a couple of examples so you know this could be related to the question there have been a number of um very strange men in black encounters at Loch Ness, where researchers of the Loch Ness Monster 
have said, you know, they've been on the shore with binoculars for several days, and they've been these sort of menacing, black-dressed, you know, guys who, you know, they just got this weird vibe from them. They were just staring at them, and again, they had these sort of really pale faces and dressed in sort of 1940s, 50s gangster-type clothing, you know, that they wore back then. Um, there have been uh, sightings of the men in black in conjunction with the famous Mothman reports from Point Pleasant, West Virginia in the 60s that led to John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, which was then made into the film with Richard Gere in 2002. So, you know, we have things like this where they cross over. And I've also got a couple of reports on file where people had seen men in black on the fringes of crop circles in England. You know, they were investigating crop circles and suddenly... You know, they had that feeling that we all have at times somebody's watching you, and they turn around. And again, there was this sort of creepy, menacing man in black just staring ominously at the person. And then they just literally vanished. So, you know, the, there is an argument to be made that the men in black don't just exclusively turn up in UFO cases. Now, whether they're literally sort of policing the phenomena, like in the movies, or, you know, they're trying to keep us away from the phenomena you know it's difficult to say but it's not just relative to ufos that you know that we see these entities and so uh, you, as you say they, they they seem to appear and disappear uh, at will so mm. they're they're not um uh driving around in in you know black lincoln's well, or or he black helicopters or are they in some cases well you know in some cases they are and this is another weird thing about the men in black is that when they turn up in cars sometimes even today, they're kind of driving like old 1950s cars, you know, the ones you would see, like I said, like gangsters driving, you know, with like the shark fin tails and the, and the white wheels even sometimes. But the, the, but the cars, even though they look 40, 50 years old, they look brand new, you know, shiny and just, you know, as if they'd just come straight out of the showroom. Um, so that's, that's like another weird aspect of the men in black that you'd imagine they want to keep themselves sort of clandestine and hidden and yet they, they wear clothing that is so memorable because it's so out of date. And they drive cars that if you saw it going down your street, you know, you'd probably look three times, never mind twice. Um, so, you know, everything about them is kind of a little bit illogical. It's like they want to silence people, but equally, it's almost like they want to be remembered and noticed as well. It's you know, which is, which is, again, like another strange side to the phenomenon. Any other tools of, of the trade that, that have been reported? I mean, do they have, going back to the movie, you know, this ability to erase a memory, or do mm. they uh, at any time, you know, administer any sort of uh, drugs? Yeah. We don't get reports like that, but, you know, one of the things I sort of alluded to, which I can expand on, is that a number of witnesses have said that, you know, they felt their kind of um, sense of free will was gone in company of the, with the men in black, you know, that they would open the front door. And most of us, you know, you would say, well, let me see some ID. You know, if it's 10.30 at night and there's three guys in black suits, in sunglasses even, you know, on your doorstep, you're not just going to let them in. But that's what people do. And it is kind of like their memory certainly isn't wiped clean, but it's like the whole the logic process of the mind is almost like suspended and they just let the people in. And then... You know, they, they relate the entire details of what occurred to them. And again, you know, that sort of suggests, as many witnesses themselves have speculated, the idea that not only was their free will taken away, but something that the MIB did was sort of prompting them, you know, to spill their guts on everything that occurred. Um, 
and, and this process goes on and on and on until the MIB are apparently satisfied and they leave. And then it's sort of 5, 10, 20 minutes later. It's almost like coming round from anaesthetic. Some of them have described it, you know, that their logic starts to come back to them, their, you know, the common sense comes back to them, and then their mind kicks in, why on earth did I do that? Now, how they do that, you know, um, again, if it was one or two cases, we could just write it off. It is, and it's dozens of reports like that. So, you know, whether they do have some sort of mechanism or tool that allows, you know, some sort of control, or whether it's, you know, purely a mental thing, you know, just um, like... I, I like a sixth sense or something like that, ESP, who knows. But there are enough reports on record to suggest that they somehow have the ability to take away a degree of our free will. Nick, have you personally had a, an encounter or an experience with the men in black? Uh, everybody asks me that, and um, I actually haven't. Um, but one of the weird things that has happened, and, and I, I kind of don't rule this out as being connected, is that, you know, I get a lot of, when you write books, and, you know, I'm sure you, you yourself, when you're doing radio shows, you know, you get a lot of people call you or write to you, send emails with their experiences. And probably over about the last 10 or 15 years, there have been somewhere around about 10, 12, 13 cases where, you know, somebody's phoned me or emailed and said, you know, can we chat? I've had a UFO experience. And I say, sure, yeah, but I'm going to be away for the next five days, lecturing or whatever. Can I call you when I get back? And they're like, yeah, that's totally fine. And then when I get back and phone them, their whole sort of mood has changed. They don't want to talk. You know, they thought, oh, I made a mistake. I, I've decided against it. And, you know, most times, you know, if people don't want to talk, that's where it ends. But of the hundreds of people I've interviewed over the years, there've probably been 10 or 11 where they've said, you know, in that sort of five or six days between you us first speaking and then you calling back, I got this sort of weird late night phone call telling me not to talk about flying saucers. You know, in simple terms, that's the story. You know, it's almost like nobody's threatened. You know, I've not been threatened, but it's almost like sometimes the, whatever this phenomenon is, it knows when the witnesses decide to speak out and it makes these sort of even these veiled threats by phone. And, you, get, you know, as I said, it's, it's not a lot of reports I've got, but I can, you know, point to at least sort of 10 to 12 reports where I've had that happen and, the, you know, the witness has said, I don't want to talk to you, you know, that something happened in that week before, you know, in between us speaking. You know, and it does put them off, and I can understand that, you know, and I, I totally understand that situation, but it kind of opens up a bigger can of worms, you know, well, who's being monitored? Is it the witness or is it the re people in the research community like me? Or is it both? You know, is there some sort of secret surveillance of everybody, you know, who's sort of digging into the UFO subject? And when you possibly uncover a significant case and they, the person's willing to talk, you know, then they make the sort of the, as I said, the veiled threat and even if necessary by phone, you know, and... Um, you, you, so I've had I've had that experience at least. You you may not have uh, directly encountered um, mm. an MIB, but I mean, do you do you have a sense that perhaps you are being surveilled because of the work that you do? Well, you know, I think I mean one one of the things I can tell you, you know, through the Freedom of Information Act, you know, we've now got a lot of official files on people who you know were in the UFO subject years ago and who were watched very closely. I mean. Some of the early so-called contactees from the 1950s, people who said they were, had contact with aliens, 
very often out in the desert and, you know, the aliens would look like us, supposedly, and they'd express concern about um, you know, nuclear weapons, etc. Um, some of these early contactees were people like George Adamski and George Van Tassel. Now, I used the Freedom of Information Act and actually got a hold of their FBI files. The FBI declassified them. The FBI surveillance file on George Van Tassel runs to just over 400 pages and covers 15 years. Oh, and this is all for a guy who said he met aliens and who said they wanted us to disarm our nuclear weapons. Now, on the one hand, you know, bear in mind this was the height of the Cold War. I think anyone talking about, you know, disarming nuclear weapons is going to be watched by, you know, the government to see if you, you know, what's your motivation, i.e. using the UFO subject as a cover to sort of spread, you know, um, you know, the, the idea that you, we should disarm our nuclear weapons. I think that's part of it. But on the other hand, it demonstrates that people in the UFO field have been watched. And we've had, we now have literally dozens and dozens of files, people like George Adamski, George Van Tassel, some of the four uh, more famous UFO researchers like um, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who actually had a small um, role in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So, in other words, when we're seeing this going back to the 50s, it would, be, it would make common sense that people, you know, in the field today are still being watched. And, um, you know, files are still surfacing from the Freedom of Information Act, you know, of people who were in the field for, for years and years, you know, and uh, extensive files, as I said, you know, spanning 10, 15 years. All right, Nick, stay with us. We'll take a time out, come back, and continue to delve into... The Men in Black, Nick Redfern, the author of The Real Men in Black, Evidence, Famous Cases and True Stories of These Mysterious Men and Their Connection to the UFO Phenomena. Phone lines are open, 416-360-0740-866-740-4740. Just about everybody works in a post office as an alien. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. If you ask me, I say she's up to something. And to be honest, I'd appreciate it if you eased up off my back about it. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Nick Redfern is with us as we talk about the men in black. Uh, Nick, you posit another uh, fascinating theory about uh, who these men in black might be and, and what they want that has nothing at all to do with the UFO phenomenon. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, which theory are you talking There's actually a lot of theories for the men Well, the idea black. that, that, that uh, uh, they could be from our future. Mm. Yeah, this is actually an interesting theory, you know, the everything about the men in black is kind of a little bit out of time, you know, as I said, they wear the old-fashioned suits and skinny black ties and the 
fedora hats and drive these old cars. And um, a number of researchers, I mean, I interviewed a lot of people for the book. One of these being a paranormal researcher in Asheville, Carolina, named Joshua P. Warren. And Josh has heavily sort of dug into the Man in Black mystery and come up with an intriguing theory. You know, what if the MIB are actually time travellers? You know, what if they are kind of like time cops, you know, that um, their whole purpose for coming here is to sort of prevent time paradoxes, you know, the whole science fiction scenario of somebody coming back in time and killing their parents so then they can't be born. So do they sort of wink out of existence or do they create another timeline? You know, these are the sort of time paradox issues that get discussed. But, you know, just speculating on the idea, if you're a time traveler, you know, say from a thousand years from now, and granted, you know, it's, it's a hypothetical scenario, you know, in terms of even whether time travel is possible. But, you know, if you're a time traveler from, say, the 30th century, and in a course of a day's work, you know, you come back to 2011, then 1985, then 1960, then 1940, then back to 1959... You know, you will need a sort of um, a costume, if you like, or an outfit that's sort of suitable for that entire 70, 80-year period, you know. And the the black suit and certainly the fedora hat would be would not stand out from, say, the 30s until probably the early 1970s. You know, and even today, even if you saw somebody in a fedora hat today, you might look twice, but you probably wouldn't remember it after that. So, you know, Josh is like, well... Maybe that's why they wear black suits, you know, because that's their entire camouflage, if you like. And But maybe, you know, he, he speculated on the idea that the future, perhaps in, in the future, you know, far-flung future, their ancient past, our present, you know, the significant details have been lost. And that's why sometimes they look so out of place, because they don't have a good, solid knowledge of 20th, 21st century history. You know, they perhaps they just have vague fragments of what life was like back then or back <laughs> back now for us um you know and this also ties in with um you know the idea of why the men in black might turn up at in the mothman case you know the idea that they're deliberately preventing you know us learning the truth about sort of paranormal phenomena that they prefer to keep us away from in the event that it could cause time paradoxes you know if some of these weird creatures like mothman is Josh Wonders could be, you know, sort of strange creatures from the far-flung future coming back to, to meddle with the timelines to benefit their future. Maybe then the men in black come hot on their trails to try and prevent or, you know, um, return to normal the damage that these other entities are doing. And, um, you know, in terms of, you know, just trying to explain why even things like deja vu might come and play a role in this, you know, where you think you've done something before, you know, and everybody's had that experience. Well, it's kind of like, well, what if to an extent it did happen before the timelines were meddled with and then somebody else put them right and you have a vague memory of, of that other timeline and maybe that's what the MIB are, you know, they're not aliens, they're not the bad guys, you know, they're actually time cops just trying to preserve all the you know prevent the chaos from occurring in 
timelines and, you know, restoring order. So, And it's an interesting theory, you know, to sort of muse upon. So. Well, it's, it's one that uh, I think was shared by Philip K. Dick, uh, who wrote the, uh, the short mm-hmm. story The Adjustment Team, which has now been made into uh, the movie yeah. The Adjustment Bureau with, with Matt Damon. And m- maybe that's uh, much closer to the truth about the Men in Black than the Men in Black franchise, you know, with Tommy Lee Jones. Well, it's interesting that Philip K. Dick actually uh, had his own sort of UFO experiences. You know, he said that at, at certain parts in his life, you know, he felt sort of guided and he would sort of channel these mess- messages would be kind of channeled through to him, he said, from uh, otherworldly entities with ideas and themes, you know, and that and then he put some of these ideas and themes into his books. So, you know, who can say maybe somebody was actually kind of you know, prompting him to come up with this scenario and, you know, pushing him to get it out there to have us perhaps think about it and, you know, muse upon it. Well, uh, um, you know, I think that's certainly the role of Hollywood to a certain extent with the, yeah. not only the UFO issue is to acclimatize us and to prepare us and to tell us the truth uh, in little dribs and drabs, mm-hmm. sort of as a controlled release, mm-hmm. who's ever ultimately controlling the message. Yeah, that, that's an interesting scenario, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's the government doing it, but, you know, other people do wonder, well, maybe it's not just the government, maybe, you know, the whatever's behind the UFO phenomenon itself, it wants to, you know, sort of slowly acclimatize us also. And it is intriguing that, you know, you can, pi- you can find people like Philip K. Dick and other authors who said, you know, they had like a a mystical experience, if you like, that put them on the path of becoming a writer or, you know, that, that gave them kind of ideas and then they went and wrote a best-selling book or whatever. You know, you have to wonder, is you know, are we being kind of subtly prompted or are they choosing certain people, you know, to help get the message out? And you think you're just coming up with the idea in your mind. Maybe you're actually not, you know. Uh, you know, there's another another um, a theory that you share in the book, The Real Men in Black, and, th- and that's more of a supernatural mm-hmm. uh, uh, explanation. I've, I've always been sort of wary of, uh, of the Ouija board. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I tried it once as a kid and swore it off and never, never would mm-hmm. go a, a, a near it again. And I hear horror stories, people trying to throw them away, and they, and they keep coming back and so forth. But, the, but people who have dabbled in Ouija boards have also been visited by these nefarious characters, have they not? Yeah, this is right. This is why I think, you know, when people say to me, who are the men in black? You know, I always say, well, which, which category? You know, there's, there's clearly a government angle. You know, I'm sure some MIB are from the government. And they may even play up, you know, and exaggerate this weird angle because, you know, and dress funny because, you know, it, it, will, it prevents people speaking. If people speak out, they sound crazy. So I, I do sometimes think the government actually uses this motif to cover their tracks, you know, that they act and look weird. But in saying that, you know, when you talk about um, Ouija boards, you know, that takes it far away from the government side and to these far stranger and creepier men in black. Now, I speak in the book probably about four or five cases where people who dabbled in the paranormal and dabbled in the occult, and certainly one of the most famous early people who had a man in black visit, a man named Albert Bender who lived in Connecticut and set up a UFO group. He was a keen user of Ouija boards, and, and we see this kind of across the board, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, in Men in Black stories, that people who've dabbled in not just Ouija boards, but, you know, demonology, paranormal research, supernatural research, it's almost like 
in simple terms, you know, you go looking for this stuff, and 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 the phenomena says, oh, it's you, you know, and it and then it gets its grips into the person, and a lot of people who you know have, have sort of delved into these areas have literally, like Albert Bendy, you know, they got so frightened they walked away from the whole subject and literally did not return to it, and or have not returned to it. Um, now, you know how we go from sort of the step of dabbling in Ouija boards to getting knocks on the front door from the men in black, you know, is a difficult one to explain. I mean, for example, I interviewed um, an interesting guy for the book named Ray Beauchet. Ray's an Anglican priest, and he's also a former state director of the U.S. group MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. So he has a background in religion. He has a background in ufology. And he believes that, you know, the, the sort of primary origin of the men in black is literally demonic. He, I mean, and when I say literally demonic, I mean he, he literally believes them to be like a manifestation of, of demons kind of, you know, masquerading as, as men in black. Um, and, it, and it's a controversial theory, but, you know, the, there are actually a lot of people in ufology who hold sort of deeply religious beliefs who who do view the entire phenomenon as some sort of like a a demonic deception, you know, to sort of lull us into the dark side with fantastic tales of aliens, you know. And I think, again, it's like the time travel theory. It's an interesting theory. And if it, if it was just the case that, you know, government, that men in black were coming around flashing ID cards and saying, don't talk about this, I would ascribe it all to the work of the government, you know, because that would be the logical thing to do. But when we have these sort of weird issues of the men in black, you know, looking strange and looking pale and these weird eyes and, you know, popping up in paranormal situations. I do think there's another sort of category of men in black, you know, whether they're time travelers, interdimensional, you know, paranormal, who knows what they actually are, but there is a clear distinction between those guys and somebody just coming out in a black suit because they happen to work for the FBI or the CIA or whatever. Now, the the people that uh that that, that have encounters with MIB after dabbling in in the occult, what are they being visited for? Are they being warned to, to stop doing that or to keep doing that? What are they What yeah. are they told? Well, in it, it's difficult to say. I mean, it's certainly in the case of people like Albert Bender. Albert Bender was, as I said, was an early researcher in the fifties. Uh, set up a UFO group and but backed away when he said he got a visit from these three guys in black suits. Um, but when he describes them in his own book called Flying Saucers and the Three Men, I mean, he talks about, that they sound like, almost like vampires, like predatory vampires. He would sort of see them in the shadows late at night in the streets and they had these sort of weirdly glowing eyes and they sound like Count Dracula but wearing you know, a fedora and a 20th century suit, sort of, you know, just gaunt and skinny, etc. Um, now, uh, Bender himself was heavily into the occult. I mean, he's, he, the house he lived in, he lived in the attic part of, the, of an old house and converted it into almost like a chamber of horrors. He had, like, plastic skulls and all sorts of things. But he was also heavily into, you know, the occult from a serious perspective. And then he had this visitation. Now, some people have speculated, well, maybe they got... Bender was visited because these entities, whatever they are, wanted to encourage his involvement in the occult and spread it to other people so they could then get their grips into those people as well. But if that was the case, it backfired because Bender got so terrified that he shut his UFO group down in 53 
I just walked away from the subject. Um, you know, just said I'm done. So, in other in other words, the the I guess the character of the person concerned reflects the outcome of the meeting with these weird men in black. Some of them become more fascinated by the occult because they want to understand who these men in black are and why they got the visit. And in other words, they be, in some respects, they become more involved in the occult as a result of the visit. Others just walk away from it all um, and leave the UFO subject alone. So you could argue, you know, if they want people to stay away from ufology, that aspect actually works. But if they also want to drag people into the occult, sometimes that works as well because the people come, become so obsessed with getting the answers. And that's one of the weird things about the Men in Black stories. People who've had the visit often become just overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly obsessed with trying to figure out who these MIB are. You know, it, go, it seems to go beyond just an interest and spirals over into like a full-blown obsession almost. All right, Nick, stay with us back with more of The Conspiracy Show, The Real Men in Black. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Nick Redfern stays with us till the top of the hour when we dim the lights and say goodnight for another week of The Conspiracy Show. Nick, most of these sightings tend to be in the United States and the United Kingdom. Is that correct? Well, actually, that's sort of been the sort of prevailing belief. What I've found is that there are actually reports from all around the world. I mean, in the book, I include reports from Mexico, Puerto Rico, Australia, England, America... Um, Central America, South America. And I think what happened particularly in the early years of ufology, and, and obviously less so today, you know, with the Internet and things like that, back then, you know, we we just didn't get reports from a lot of other countries because perhaps, you know, the communication systems and, you know, there wasn't instant access to data. And so, you know, a story that might have appeared in, say, a Brazilian newspaper, you know, as a column on page six just didn't make it to the US or to the UK so there was this kind of belief that well it only happens here because we're not getting reports from somewhere else but the more we look into it sort of retrospectively and go through a lot of the old magazines you know say Brazilian UFO magazines that didn't make it to the US we find very similar stories Um, so in other words I think it actually is a worldwide phenomenon and the more our technology advances to where we've got instant communication we're getting to see more reports from around the world, you know, so I think it's just, I think that's, that's the biggest thing. It's actually the ability of us to uncover stories that's, that's helped, you know, sort of presented as a global phenomenon, if you like. I've, I've had uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley on the program. Well, she's a, oh, yeah. a kind of a regular a contributor. She comes on once a month mm-hmm. with different paranormal field investigations, and, and uh, we, we've talked a lot about uh, shadow people. And uh, one of the interesting things about uh, the descriptions of shadow people, they all, they all often seem to be wearing some sort of a hat. You can sort of yeah. make out the, the, in, in the shadow. I mean, there's no actual features because it's a shadow. But people report seeing this, this shadow wearing what appears to be some sort of an antiquated-looking hat. Mm-hmm. 
So what's the connection, if any, between the men in black and shadow people, Nick? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the shadow people, there is like one category of shadow people that, um, uh, that uh, Rosemary might have mentioned to you, which is known as the hat man. And, um, you know, people have seen these all around the world. And you're quite right, you know, instead of seeing like a fully formed person in a suit, it's like people see like a silhouette, you know, of a, of a, of a man in black. But you can, you have to, it has this classic noticeable hat as well. Um, I actually do think there's a direct connection between the more paranormal men in black and the hat and the shadow people, and it could be sort of um, you know an offshoot of the of the exact same phenomenon. I mean, for example, Albert Bender's men in black. You know, they didn't knock on the front door or anything like that. He said they literally kind of just manifested in the room, in his bedroom, and he said that when he saw them in the bedroom, he was kind of rendered into like an altered state. And we get a lot of that in the shadow people reports where somebody's sort of fast asleep, they wake up at two in the morning, they're unable to move, but they sense this, I guess, like threatening presence in the room, you know, they're just watching them from the, sh- from the corner of the room in the shadows. And, you know, as they struggle to try and move and they look up, they see this shadowy hat-wearing form just menacingly glaring at them. And that's exactly what Albert Bender described, but he... You know, back then we didn't have the term shadow people. He described it as like a man in black and perceived it, that the reason they were, had appeared was because of his UFO research. But, you know, because they sound far more paranormal, you could argue that that um, Bender actually saw shadow people because of his paranormal research, not men in black because of his UFO research, you know. So I think that somewhere there's a crossover between the two and we're dealing with perhaps different strands of a, of a larger phenomenon. Let's go to the phones and Burlington checking in. Good morning, Michael. Morning, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Can you hear me okay? I've got you on speakerphone. I can hear you. Go ahead. You're on the line with Nick Redfern. Yeah, well, I've got a question for Nick, and, and it's partially answered because he got into different areas of different things, but when I heard not only about the description of the men in black and I heard about their old cars and things like that, I began to think to myself, there would be people that would see these cars around and everything, and certainly there would be people seeing them approach a house or leave a house, even if it was late at night, that once in a while there would be somebody. Mm. And I'm wondering, and, and if Nick could answer this question, if they're not really men in black, if that's something that's been planted into the minds of people, that maybe there's something completely different. Um, they seem to, for so many years, have approached the situation in the same way, mm. very little evidence of, of anybody seeing them coming or going. Is, are they something else? Are they, are they not really the men in black, so to speak, or is that implanted in the minds of mm. the people that have contacted them? Well, that's actually an interesting scenario and a good question, because you're right. I mean, you know, most people... They get the knock on the front door, but, you know, there's no sort of, you know, the security light doesn't go on or anything like that. The neighbors didn't see anything. And sometimes, you know, when they leave, people race to the front door to say, well, you know, why did you let them in? And they go, you know, they open the front door and there's nobody walking down the drive. There's no car. It's almost like they've just literally appeared at the front door and then vanished again afterwards. And this has led to one bit of speculation, which I think probably ties in with what you're getting at, where people have speculated that maybe the man in black experience is like a screen memory for something else. You know, it's kind of like a, an abduction story or something like that. Um, 
but the witness remembers it as something radically different, like a, a, a weird man in black encounter. And, and there's absolutely no doubt that many people who have had the MIB experience have said they felt weird at the time. The reports of people feeling drained of energy, that, you know, that they felt drunk or hypnotized as if their mind was being played with. And afterwards, you know, they had either fragments of the story and bits of it would come back to them later on. So, you know, a good argument can actually be made that maybe what the person remembers actually isn't what occurred, but maybe, you know, the, the idea that you cover one event up with something else to distract and keep people away from the real story, you know, is, I think is an interesting one. I think that's possibly what you were getting at. Was it? Michael, thank you for the call. You know, thank maybe, you very much. Maybe it's, uh, if it is some sort of an alien mm-hmm. uh, race that um, just picked some archetype uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe they received a television signal, maybe it was from Dragnet, you know, in 1959 yeah. and they just simply haven't updated the archetype. They've been, I don't know, too lazy. Uh, it's like, you know, ch- changing from, uh, I don't know, Vista to uh, to uh, X uh, or whatever, whatever the operating yeah. system is. Uh, let's say hi to Paul in Oshawa. Good morning, Paul. Richard, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Is this Paul, our um, alien abduction friend? Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm glad you made it over to Canada. Well, hi, Paul. Well, thanks. I guess I'm um, metaphorically in Canada. <laughs> I, I need your professional help on this, Nick. Uh, I've experienced a lot of UFOs. It really started in 2003, 2004. I was followed by a black helicopter, uh, which was near the anniversary of a very prevalent site on March 3rd, 2003. It was March 3rd, 2004, I was followed. Uh, It was uh, definitely being followed. Uh, It was like intimidation to me, but all I could do is uh, when I stopped and it was hovering just across the street, just above hydro lines, I just, you know, raised a peace sign and blew a kiss, and uh, they followed on when I got home, and... I've noticed also uh, thereafter the phone uh, talking to local investigators in Canada. Uh, I would get interrupted with a high-frequency pitched tone that would separate our conversation. The other party wouldn't get it, but I would get it. So there's been a lot of intimidation uh, on the phone with me, black helicopters. I see black helicopters before and after UFOs, so they sort of miss the window. Uh, Even when I've gone to UFO meetings near the uh, place I'm going, being a mile away or two away, I could see a black helicopter in the area before I get there. It looks like some kind of monitoring and some kind of intimidation, but nobody's yet come to my door. And I'm curious, Nick, are there some people who who are very deep in the subject, like, say, George Mdowski, where they never got visits from anybody like that? Yeah, I, th- I think possibly what sometimes happens is that uh, I think, you know, when you're dealing with, the government side of things, and when I think when you're talking about black helicopters and telephone things, you know, I think this is more sort of to do with the government's MIB. And I think sometimes, you know, we think the government has all the answers. I think what they sometimes, on certain aspects of the UFO phenomenon, I think the government may be in the dark as much as us. And so what they do to try and find out more is that they monitor the most important people in the subject, and that's the witnesses like yourself. Because it's like, you know, if they don't have the answers, it's like, well, you know, let's watch the people who are having the experiences and see what we can learn from them. And, but we don't want them saying too much, so let's offer a bit of intimidation as well. So I think that goes on. I think, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you want to 
see how lions act in the wild, you know, you watch the lions. And I think it could be the same thing. You know, they watch the abductees because they want to know who's abducting them and why. So I think, you know, that comes into play as well as to why people are being watched, such as yourself. Paul, thank you for the call as always. Thank you very much. Have a good night, guys. You too. Thanks, you too. Nick, what else are you working on these days? Um, well, I've always got a couple of books going on. I'm working on a, one, um, my other big interest, which is cryptozoology, um, so the search for unknown animals and strange creatures, uh, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, and uh, I'm, I should have the, that book finished by the end of this year. It's called Monster Diary, and it sort of follows me like road trip style, which is how I write most of my cryptozoology books, you know, sort of traveling around different countries and... Um, you know, investigating the weird creatures that are there and then sort of presenting it in like a diary format, if you like. So hopefully that'll be out round about the end of the year. Ah, well, our, my television production crew were coming down to Texas at some point this summer. I'd love to pay you a visit and uh, maybe we can uh, uh, do an interview with you. Well, that'll be great. I'm like 15 minutes from DFW Airport. So. Well, we'll be in the area. We'll, uh, we'll look you up. So um, okay. how do people get a hold of uh, a copy of The Real Men in Black? Um, well, it's available from all good book-selling outlets, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders, all good bookshops around the world. And uh, if people want to contact me, um, they can reach me at nickredfern.com. Nick, always a pleasure. Look forward to, uh, hopefully, uh, meeting you face-to-face in the coming months. All right, that sounds good. Thanks, Richard. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Nick Redfern, The Real Men in Black, Evidence, Famous Cases, and True Stories of These Mysterious Men and Their Connection to UFO Phenomena. My thanks also, of course, to John Rappaport from No More Fake News. As always, visit the website. I'm, I'm trying to catch up, folks. I know I've been uh, a little lax in updating the uh, the site, but uh, I've got this week's up, and uh, I promise I'll try and stay on top of it as best I can when I'm not out on the road. www.richardserrett.com my thanks, as always, to Griffin March for his capable adroitness behind the uh, the audio board. Next week, Linda Godfrey on the trail of the American werewolf. She has a new book out about tracking uh, werewolves down in uh, Wisconsin. Of course, the author of uh, The Beast of Bray Road. That's Linda Godfrey next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.